Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago, and I'll be uh, hosting the presentation this morning. Today is Sunday, August 21st, 2022. Let me give you the share ID numbers for Friday, August 19th, for the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting. That number is 19,312. That's 19312. And for the 10 a.m. meeting, that number is 19,313. That's 19313. This morning, A Vision for You presents Jim, the Jaywalker, and Fred, Treating the Inner Condition. So for, for many of us, you know, by the time we arrive to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, we're, uh, we're bewildered, to say the least, um, you know, primarily about why we can't stop eating and engaging in unhealthy uh, behaviors around food. And it certainly seems uh, as though food is the primary problem. And we'll learn, you know, we learn more about that. But, you know, what do we do? And, and, and where do we go? And, and how many roads had we traveled that, that resulted in encountering another dead end? And it's often said that, you know, if you, if you don't know where you are going, any road will take you there. And as we begin to learn about our disease, you know, it becomes apparent that we simply didn't understand the nature of our problem. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous refers to the symptoms of the spiritual malady. It refers to them as bedevilments. And it explains that, you know, we were having trouble with our personal relationships and we couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. It goes on, we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness and we were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And could it be that we have a spiritual malady? And, and what was driving me to addictive substances and behaviors? And, and if this is true, you know, what, what do I have to do to overcome this, this feeling of disconnection? And many of us felt that there was something wrong with us or, or something missing. You know, in short, that we, we felt different from other people. We, we, we couldn't understand why the people surrounding us could feel uh, happiness or contentment. So we turned to food as a means of self-medicating our, uh, you know, our, you know, feeding our addictions. We, we felt that the opposite begins to happen, that rather than providing real relief, we found ourselves in a perpetual state of disconnection and confusion, and we were, we were cut off from any sense of spiritual comfort. Joining us this morning to elaborate on, on her experience with the spiritual malady and share some, some real insights about key parts of Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, is Dara L. from Pennsylvania. And Dara is a dedicated member of Overeaters Anonymous who has recovered from this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And it's with great pleasure that, that uh, we welcome Dara to the line this morning. Good morning, Dara. Oh, good morning, Larry. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Um, before I introduce myself, I think I'm just going to pray for a moment. So 
God, goddess, goddess, spirit of light and love, whatever is out there, up there in me and in all others, please give me the courage and the strength to tell the truth about what it was like to be caught in this hopeless state of mind and body and to talk about the miracle of recovery that you have affected in my life, um, despite me doing nothing to earn it or to deserve it. And God, please help my story to act as a beacon of light for anyone who is sick and suffering um, in or out of abstinence that they may know a peace and a love and a freedom that they do not currently enjoy. Amen. Um, So anyways, my name is Dara L. I'm a recovered um, compulsive eater and a recovered anorexic and bulimic. Um, Generally, when I introduce myself on the line, I only say I'm a recovered compulsive eater in keeping with the intentions of the group, but my story really doesn't make sense. Um, unless I talk about the authentic nature of the disease and what we do with food takes many, many manifestations. But as Larry alluded to, you know, um, the food stuff wasn't actually my problem. It was my solution to the problem of inner unmanageability and um, the solution to living an abstinent life, which for me is intolerable without something to worship. You know, I really believe today that if I, as an addict, do not have something to worship, whether that be food or, you know, restriction or purging or whatever it is, you know, I will, I, or God, um, I will kill myself. I, I, I am um, really, you know, it is very, very painful to be me um, without a God. So um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 30 says, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Um, I know a lot about insanity. (laughs) Um, I've actually, um, I've been institutionalized in long-term eating disorder treatment 18 times. Um, And what I mean by that is that I've spent periods of, of my life, whether it be, you know, anywhere from 10 days to two weeks, to the longest stretch was nine months um, shut away in institutions because I could not live on the outside without um, obsessively questing for food, for thinness, um, for, you know, purging. Like, I, I am a junkie. I am a hardcore addict. Um, and, and you know, I think there's a lot of, of a desire, right, to, like, know why. Like, why, why, why? Like, why do I have this thing? Like, what is wrong with me? Um, and I don't know, you know, the longer that I, I, I am in recovery, the longer that I'm sort of dig deep down into myself, I, I actually know less and less about why I have this disease, but I can tell you what it is. Um, and I love that it's really the same for everyone. And that's what, that's what draws us together. Like no matter what our backgrounds, no matter what our histories, no matter what our stories, um, you know, the we are compulsive eaters, anorexics, bulimics. We do what we do with food um, for two reasons. One is an allergy of the body. And what that means to me today is that there are certain ingredients that once I ingest them, I cannot stop. Or actually, no, I'm going to say I cannot predict with certainty whether or not I will be able to stop and when, right? And I think um, that's something I misunderstood too for a long time. Like I thought that 
oh, well, you know, I can eat this certain ingredient um, sometimes and get away with it. Like, so therefore I must not really be that bad, you know, or sometimes I can purge um, and I might go three weeks without doing it again, you know, so therefore I might, must not really be that bad. And, and what the big book tells me is actually um, that the allergy of the body means that, you know, it gets activated outside of my ability to control it. And I don't know, um, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I might, I might break out in a binge or a series of sprees, or I might be okay. Like my addiction is like a, you know, a game of Russian roulette on a physical level. I don't know what's going to happen to me once I ingest certain ingredients, or in my case, once I start restricting, or once I pass a certain point of fullness, you know, or once I purge, like all of that stuff throws everything out of the window, my sound reasoning, you know, my ability to live according to my values, all of that is completely and totally gone. Um, once I ingest something that is problematic for me, I, I lose control. Um, and, you know, like I have other allergies. I'm allergic to cats. I'm allergic to dust. Um, like, it's cool. I stay away from those things. I'm fine. I live a, you know, a free and vibrant and active life with a couple of modifications. But, um, but when it comes to the allergies of my body that have to do with food, that have to do with restriction over exercising, binging and purging, um, I, I have a mind that leads me back to those things again and again, no matter how painful it gets, no matter the personal consequences to me or to those I love. Um, and no matter how it really changes my inner state, um, being under the influence of active addiction. And the big book tells me why that is, right? It says, and more about alcoholism, um, in the very beginning of the chapter, it says the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking. And I read this before, but I'm going to repeat it again. It's a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Um, and for me, you know, I, I totally misunderstood this. And I think a lot of people misunderstand this. Like I thought that my delusion would be smashed if I just had enough consequences for my acting out behavior. And so I'm just going to tell you some of the things that happened to me as a result of acting out um, in this addiction. Um, and then I'm definitely going to talk about the story of Jim, the story of the jaywalker, and the story of Fred. But I think it's really important for me to, to kind of share um, a little bit about the disease prior to coming into the room of Overeaters Anonymous, because prior to that, I didn't know about the physical allergy, and I didn't know about the mental obsession, and because I didn't know, um, I was actually not responsible for doing anything about I mean, I like I was. I was responsible, but I was under the influence, and so I couldn't ever get free, and it explains some things to me today that were are, were completely <laughs> incomprehensible until I learned about the physical allergy and the mental obsession. Um, so as a result of my of my active addiction, I lost relationships. Um, I did horrible things to people that I claimed to love. I stole money, um, a lot, a lot of money. Like I'm not talking about, you know, $10 from a purse. I embezzled thousands and thousands of dollars from companies that I worked for. Um, I was a cruel and hateful person. I cheated on every single relationship I've ever been in. I, I, I um, cheated. Um, 
you know, and justified it to myself. You know, I was a liar. I, I think there's, um, you know, bulimia is a very dishonest disease, right? I, I had a $300 a day food habit. I spent $300 a day on food. Um, and yet I was uh, at one point in my disease, I got down to 96 pounds and I'm five, seven and a half, right? Like I was a, I was a walking wounded person and I hurt everyone who um, was, uh, I, I, at the time I thought they were stupid enough to love me, right? Like if you really knew me, then you wouldn't love me. And the truth was that I didn't know myself. I didn't see the lovability. Um, all I was for many, many years was my disease. And it was a really, it was a really painful place to be. Um, but the good news is, is that recovery is possible. And the good news is, is that once I understand and know, you know, that I have this physical allergy, and once I know that um, I have the mental obsession and that the only solution is a spiritual one, is to find a power greater than myself who can make the things that I crave with every cell of my being no longer desirable to me, like then I have a hope, right? And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I, I got introduced to the 12-step program of recovery um, because it's beautiful and it really speaks to like how God uses even the most broken of us, you know? Um, so I, uh, I think I was around my 16th inpatient eating disorder treatment. I'd gotten out. I'd relapsed again. I was in a relationship. Well, just backing up for a second. When I was 17 years old, my mother, who I love dearly today and who's my best friend, um, she came to me and she said, you know, Dara, like, I love you to pieces. I know you've got this eating disorder. I know I can't change it or control it, but like, you cannot keep binging and purging in my house. You know, like, I mean, it was, it was filthy. It was disgusting. I shared a bathroom with my sister, like, I, and who was 12 years younger than me. Like, I was stealing everybody's food. I was just, I was a terror to live with. Um, and my mom said, you know, like, I just, you just, can you just commit to like purging outside of the house? Like, that's, that's all I need from you. And I told her to go F herself. And I moved out of my house and I moved in with my drug addicted boyfriend. Um, you know, and we were off. I had arrived. It was glorious. I could do whatever I want. I could self-destruct with impunity. Um, so anyway, so how I got introduced to the 12-step program of recovery was that this guy who was like, you know, a crazy drug addict got sober. And he said to me one day, he goes, you know, you are with food the way I am with drugs and alcohol. And if you don't get your act together, I'm going to leave you. And I have a massive ego because I am an addict. And I was like, F you, I'm going to show you. Um, but I had heard, I had heard that OA people were crazy because they don't eat flour and sugar and they weigh and measure their food. And P.S. today, I don't eat flour and sugar and I weigh and measure my food, but I was unwilling to go to OA. And so my drug addict boyfriend brought me to AA and I sat in those rooms um, for a long time and I lied, um, you know, and I slept with people and I just did all these things in AA that I wasn't supposed to do. But one of the beautiful things about being exposed to the 12-step program through AA was that I really learned there about the serious nature of the disease and I learned about entire abstinence and I learned that people don't ever show up at an AA meeting and be like, well, I'm drinking less, you know? And so by the time that I finally um, was willing to go to OA and really give recovery a shot, there was like, I knew that it's an all or nothing program, um, like when it comes to the allergy of the body, right? Like I knew that um, I don't get to be like half drunk in OA. Um, and I'm really grateful today for that awareness. And I'm really grateful today um, that despite, um, despite myself, you know, God has seen fit to rescue me 
from the hopeless state of mind and body. And so I'm going to like pick up um, with the story of Jim, the story of the jaywalker and the story of, of Fred, um, just by, you know, giving the, the acknowledgement that it talks about how we can have this tremendous urge to cease forever, yet find it impossible to stop. And that's the baffling feature of alcoholism, the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And then, you know, the big book goes on to really say, you know, they're going to describe some of the mental states that proceed or relapse into drinking, because obviously this is the crux of the problem, um, is, you know, the thinking, the mind, right, that leads me back to the thing that's objectionable. And so as I talk about the story of um, Jim, the story of the jaywalker and the story of Fred today, I want to talk about um, my experiences after coming into the 12-step program, after getting sober, and after having a spiritual awakening as a result of, of practicing the steps, because this is my fourth time recovered. Um, and I would really love for my story to spare some other people some pain um, that I went through and, and maybe help to dismantle some of the misconceptions that I had and still have about this disease being caused by things outside of me because it's not, you know, what I've learned here and what I'm continuing to learn is that like my spiritual malady, my inner sickness is the problem and it doesn't matter what's happening outside of me. I need to do certain work in order to be mentally, um, mentally free. And so, yeah, I, you know, I came into this program, I got entirely abstinent, I worked the steps, you know, for the first time, I really meant it, I had a sincere desire to be recovered, I had two years of abstinence. um, And I, you know, I ended up binging and purging again, and going back into the disease. And then I came back at two years of abstinence, and I ended up going back into the disease. And I came back I had two years of abstinence. I left the program. It took me three years to pick up again. So I had five years, you know, but by the, but I was stark raving abstinent, um, you know, and, and I came back in um, a year and I guess seven months and some change ago and worked the steps like my life depended on it and got recovered again. And, and that can only happen, right? Like um, if I have um, the thinking of an alcoholic who repeats time after time, the desperate experiment of the first drink or the first compulsive bite or the first restriction. Um, So the story of Jim, right? And I am, I'm not a big book scholar. I wish I were, I wish I was less, less self-centered because then maybe I would care more about Jim's story and Fred's story and the Jaywalker's story. But I always want to know, like, how does this relate to me? You know, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you um, my version of, of what I think the Jim story means and how it relates to me in my life. So, you know, when I read the story of Jim, which starts on page 35 of the big book, um, you know, I really, I relate to this person, right? Like he's got a commendable war record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's intelligent. Um, he's normal, except for a nervous disposition. And I like that it says normal so far as we can see. So like from the outside observer looking in, um, I, I had everything going for me, you know, like I was smart and funny and I had people who like for some reason wanted to be around me and um and yet on the inside I had that nervous disposition and Larry referred to the bedevilment in a sort of tee up to this right and um we were having trouble with personal relationships we couldn't control our emotional natures we were a prey 
to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. So that's, you know, that's what's going on for me on the inside, no matter how I look on the outside. And I think that was the case with Jim, right? And so he starts drinking and he becomes so violent when intoxicated that he has to be committed. And I relate to this. I remember throwing my shoe at a guy that I was dating. Um, I don't I don't remember why, but I you know, I picked fights, I screamed at people. Um, I was, you know, like I I used to have this stepdad and we would get in these physical altercations. Like I was just I was raring to go, you know, under the influence of food. I was violent and as a bulimic, I was <laughs> You know, like, I'm violent towards myself, I'm violent towards other people, like, I am not in my right mind under the influence um, of food, and and often, you know, just under the influence of untreated addiction, and so then, you know, Jim gets sent to the asylum, and and they tell him, you know, what, what they knew of alcoholism, and he makes this beginning, and he starts to, like, good things start happening to him again, but he fails to enlarge his spiritual life. And so did, how did that happen to me? Well, so for me, um, what happened was I got out of treatment. I came back to OA. I, I, you know, I worked the steps. I had this spiritual awakening. I was sponsoring. I was the group conscience coordinator for like this meeting with, you know, not this particular meeting, but a meeting with, you know, over 100 people every day. Like I had arrived. I thought I was cool. Um, the only thing, though, that I, I wasn't really talking about um, was the fact that I was in a relationship and I was cheating on my girlfriend and I was, like, lying about it. And um, and I had, like, you know, I mean, I sort of had a spiritual life. Like, I was praying. I was meditating. I was um, calling people and complaining about my problems, which I thought that's what step 10 was. Um, but, that you know, that's what I was doing. I was sponsoring Um but I just, there were pockets in my life that I was like, yeah, yeah, no, God's not going to touch this. Like, this isn't, this is for me. Like, you've got this food stuff. I can give you that. I can stop binging. I cannot purge. I cannot, you know, and, and the, the problem for me is that every time I've worked the steps, I've had such a, such a spiritual awakening that the food does not call to me anymore. And I think I'm cured. Like, you know, like, meanwhile, me, right, who, like, was binging and purging 12 times a day at one point in my life, vomiting blood, you know, like, going to the hospital, having seizures, you know, like, whatever. I'm like, oh, I haven't, you know, I haven't thrown up for a, a couple years. So, like, I'm good. I don't really have a problem. Um, God can't touch this, you know. And so that's how I was. I just, um, I was Jim. And then to my consternation, I found myself having these relapses, you know, and, and, and people talk to me about it and they're like, well, why, you know, like, let's talk about why, let's talk about what's going on. And I just, I, I, you know, the insanity piece for me is I'll keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results in or out of recovery. Right. And I'm like, well, what worked before is going to work now. So I'm just going to do exactly what I did before, even though that led to a relapse. And, um, you know, and so I love that in Jim's story, he talks about, coming to work on a Tuesday morning and feeling irritated that he has to be a salesman for a concern he once owned um, and having a few words with the boss, but nothing serious, right? Like, so he's like minimizing um, what is really going on and, and the ego, right? Like, you know, he completely implodes his life and then he comes back and he's like, wait a minute, like I should be on top again. And, and that was what happened to me with my gym relapse. You know, I'd, I'd, um, 
I cheated on my the person I was in a relationship with. I told her about it. She fell apart. The relationship was, there was a whole lot of pain. I was rebuilding. You know, I had friendships. I had, you know, all the stuff that I built after completely pulling the structure of my life down on me again and again and again and being in and out of treatment. Like I had people who loved me again and trusted me and I had this job, but it was, it was a job that was like a BS job. You know, like I came from like a high powered finance career and I'm like, I'm like selling books at like this spiritual bookstore. And I'm like, this is crap. You know, I'm too good for this. Like, I, you know, I don't understand why the person I'm in a relationship with, like, needs me to like earn her, my, her trust back. Like, this is stupid. Like, don't you people know who I am? And, um, and so for Jim, what happens is he, he goes to this restaurant and he sits down and he, you know, he orders a couple of sandwiches and then he gets a glass of milk and he puts whiskey in the milk. And for me, I was entirely abstinent. I, you know, I had my abstinent lunch and then the thought came, you know, I'm just going to have an extra pair, you know, like what's the big deal? I'm hungry. I'm entitled. And so I had that extra pair. And for me, that turned into a bin. Then I was like driving, you know, whatever, buying my binge food, coming home, purging, like just, I was in it, you know, I was in the disease again. And I was like, Jim, like I was left completely and totally baffled. You know, I had much knowledge about myself as an anorexic, bulimic, a compulsive eater, yet all reasons for not eating compulsively, all reasons for not binging and purging were easily pushed aside. And, you know, in Jim's idea for the, you know, in Jim's case, because of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey, if only he mixed it with milk and for me it was the foolish idea that like it's only a pair you know like what the hell it's abstinent like I'm entitled it'll be fine um and it wasn't it wasn't fine and um you know and I love that the big book really talks about how we have this curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink or taking the first bite, you know, and next day we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. And that was me, you know, I'm I'm baffled every time I'm in the disease. Today in recovery, I'm kind of baffled every time I'm not in the disease. I'm like, what? This is a miracle, you know, like something happened and I'm like, you know, dealing with it. I'm dealing with life. Like, how is this? Who is this person? You know, thank you, God. Um but I was always so, so, so baffled by the by the disease, by the eating disorder. Like, I didn't understand why, as a person who was, like, relatively intelligent, who had all this experience of my life collapsing, you know, who could, like, regain my physical health and my relationships and have money in the bank or whatever, and then, like, suddenly I would be in the disease again. And I just, I, I thought my problem was the food. I, and I And because I thought my problem was the food, then once the food thing was solved, I thought I didn't have a problem anymore. And what I think the big book just beats home again and again and again is that like the problem is not the powerlessness over certain ingredients and certain behaviors. Although without putting those things down, I have no chance of a solution. But the real problem is what happens in my mind. I have the mind of a chronic addict. I'm self-centered and and selfish and more than that and dishonest and afraid but like more than that I separate myself from God and God is the source of love and I have this tendency to self-destruct and so if I'm not connected to the source of love that is of God I will kill myself you know and I don't 
personally, I don't know that the disease is out to kill me. I just know that it will kill me. I think the disease, like any other disease, like cancer, like diabetes, like whatever, it's just growing. It is growing inside of me. And because it's growing inside of me, I need God to come in and allow the love and the light to shine so brightly that that disease just doesn't have enough room to breathe and to take over my life. Um, So anyways, yes, like that's my gym experience. And then, you know, we move into the story of the jaywalker. And I love this story. I'm going to read it in its entirety because it so describes me. And I also want to say that I am so glad I am so glad that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have the example of the jaywalker because what it teaches me as a recovered anorexic, bulimic, and compulsive overeater is that actually like ours is not just about the allergy of the body to specific ingredients. It is also a behavioral problem. And so I read the jaywalker through that lens that it is about ingredients. Yes. And it is also about behaviors. Um, So starting on page 37, our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time he has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have have to admit, if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. And so how am I the jaywalker? You know, for me, one of the hardest things to give up um, has been restriction um, in this disease because I get a rush out of the feeling of superiority that comes from being just a little too thin. Um, That is my crack cocaine. Like if I could figure out how to do that without the resultant binging and purging and starving and, you know, or the binging and purging and, you know, the stuffing myself so full of food that I cannot move, which I, which I also have done in the disease many, many times over, um, you know, it would, it would be hard. It would be hard for me to live a life um, without, trying to restrict if I didn't also see today that that restriction is a setup for everything else in my life. And so one of the ways that I would get my thrills, I mean, there are many, but one of the ways that I would get my thrills was by being just a little bit too thin and having everybody love and admire me because of how I looked. Um, And then, you know, out of that place, I would also feel a deep, deep, profound sense of emptiness and internal emptiness. And I wasn't getting my fix with being able to stuff myself full of food or the high of 
being able to purge. And so then I would, I would act out in other ways, you know, like for me, it was, I, I would engage in very dangerous um, sexual behavior and acting out in those ways. And then, you know, um, and I like with the Jaywalker story that it talks about sort of like the risk, the risky behavior. So it's like putting ourselves, putting myself in a thrill seeking situation that is potentially deadly to me. And when I frame it that way, I, I can see how all of the things that I did in my disease were that, right? Like bulimia, I could have died many, many times over from a ruptured esophagus or many, many times over from an intestinal hemorrhage. The level of binging that I did was catastrophic. The level of restriction that I did was was so painful. You know, I remember at one point I was in, um, and when I talk about the times I've been institutionalized in treatment facilities, that has nothing to do with the times I've been hospitalized. Like, um, one time I was brought from work, I passed out at work and so they, they, you know, took me to the ER in an ambulance and pumped me full of IV fluids. And, um, you know, I got out of there and I'm just like the jaywalker, you know, I, I, I got out of there. I got taken back to my um, car in a, in a taxi and I drove straight to the nearest McDonald's, you know, and I remember one time I got out of a treatment facility um, and I stole food on the way out the door of the treatment facility. You know, I am that jaywalker. It does not matter what the consequences are. I will go. I will ride this thing until the wheels fall off. I am I, I am self-destructive to the nth degree. And I'm killing myself. But it feels like a thrill to me. It feels exciting, you know. It feels, it feels actually, it feels like a spiritual experience for me to binge and purge um, or starve or over-exercise until it doesn't, you know, until I have a new reference point and a new framework for what spirituality is, you know, but I don't know that. I don't know that when I'm in active addiction. All I know is that this thing that might kill me feels like life, and I don't know how to feel alive any other way than to chase death. And some years ago, I heard something it was it was about gamblers. They were talking about gamblers. Um, but I think every addict is a gambler. We're all gambling with our lives, you know, as long as we're in the disease. Um, and they talked about how, you know, the, the difference between someone with a gambling addiction and someone who doesn't have a gambling addiction is that the gambler experiences like a full-on loss the same way as a non-gambler. They both experience full-on losses the same way. Um, the, you know, and they both experience full-on wins, like, you know, oh, I hit the jackpot the same way. But the difference between the non-gambler and the gambler is the gambler experiences an almost win as a win. And I think to me that also describes, like, why the jaywalking idea is so challenging to get out of my head, because I got to tell you, like, when I would binge and purge um, or when I would stuff myself full of food or whatever, like, I never, I always experienced like the almost win. Like I was always like, well, it was, it was pretty good, but it'll be better next time. You know, like I just, I never like, that was absolutely horrible. There was nothing good about it, you know, or sometimes I would think that while I was in the active disease. Um, but then the moment I stopped, I was like, I, you know, somehow, someday I'm going to beat the game. I'm going to recapture the magic. It'll be great. I'll arrive. It'll be awesome. Um, and I have a friend, uh, his name was Frankie. He died years ago of a heroin overdose. And he told me something that I've always like, really, I think about it every time I read the Jaywalker story. He said, you know, that for an addict, what's fun in the beginning becomes habit and what's habit becomes necessity. And the addict keeps trying to get from necessity back to fun again. And I so relate to that, you know, I mean, just 
it was never as fun for me as the years dragged on as it was in the beginning, but I kept trying to recapture that magic and I kept trying to seek that thrill. Um, you know, and over time, as I ran out into traffic, I got hit and hit more regularly and my injuries got worse and worse and the damage I did to other people got worse. But like, I kept trying to get that magic, you know, and it, 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 it's never gonna, it's never gonna be magic again. Um, and I know that today, and I hope and pray that I continue to know that and continue to do the work, so that you know the things that will kill me don't seem attractive to me anymore. Um, yeah, and you know, and then on page thirty-nine, we're told the actual, um, you know, the alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And so, you know, like knowing all this stuff doesn't actually help me um, really, like not at all, you know, like I have to have an experience of it and then I have to give that, I have to share with others to keep that experience fresh so that something greater than me can work in me and through me, like this beautiful power um, to keep me in a state of sound mind and sound body so I no longer crave the things that are destructive to me. Um, and what I love, you know, I when when asked to do this, I, I, I wanted to talk about the inner condition because I think, you know, it's very easy for me to look at the story of Jim and the story of the jaywalker and think about all the external consequences and misunderstand what it is to be an addict. Um, but the story of Fred really teaches me so much, right? Because Fred is a great guy. You know, he's super successful. He's stable. He's balanced. But he has the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. He has what I have, you know. And um, and he makes up his mind that he's going to stop, you know. Like, he, I don't think he has any lurking notions. I don't think he has any reservations. I believe, uh, you know, this program has taught me to believe addicts when they tell me, you know, where they're coming from. And I believe that Fred was like, I'm done. You know, I've got all these things to live for. Everything outside of me is great. And, you know, I don't want to do this stuff anymore. I don't want to hurt people anymore. And I'm going to apply my willpower to this problem. And and so, he, you know, he does and he tries and he, and he really, um, you know, believes that he's never, ever, ever going to go back to the disease again. Um, and, but then, you know, something happens, which is, is that he doesn't believe that something greater than himself is needed to do the work. He believes that his own willpower is going to save him. And because of that, you know, because he thinks, you know, I'm just going to buck up and do it, um, you know, he's lost. And for me as an addict, I have to know that no matter how much willpower I have, no matter how strong I am, no matter how much I want to never again um, be destructive when it comes to food, you know, step one doesn't tell me that I can't eat compulsively. It tells me that I will um, without God. And so the next, you know, 11 steps are all about how to access that power. And I just want to say, you know, when I say God or a power greater than myself, like, I mean, whatever works for you, like whatever we need to believe in that's going to be bigger than our own egos, like amazing, go to it, have at it. You know, some of the most spiritual people I know are uh, atheists and I love that. You know, people teach me about God every day who don't believe in the God that I believe in and that's awesome. Um, so anyway, so Fred, you know, he goes to Washington, he's presenting some accounting evidence, like this is a smart guy, you know, he's super smart and he's got this good career, um, his business comes off well, he's pleased. And then he says, it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. 
I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all nothing more. And then, you know, suddenly Fred is off and he's, you know, in a relapse. And um, and so for me, in 2019, my life was awesome from the outside. It was so great. My body was like the best body I've, I'd ever had, you know, which to me because I'm super superficial and self-centered like that was really important you know to me at that time um my I was earning more money than I've ever made before doing what I love had a great vibrant career I was dating had like a ton of people who were interested in me um you know I don't know my my family relationships were great my friendship relationships were great I was doing all this like self-development leadership development work and I was like winning all these awards like everything was awesome I was you know I had arrived I thought I was really really cool and I had completely misunderstood the second half of step one as being that my life is unmanageable outside of me right and so like I think okay I haven't had a compulsive bite in five years I haven't binged and purged um, outside of me, everything is great. So like, I should be fine, right? Like, I'm awesome. I've arrived. And um, in 2019, I get a call from a friend of mine. And I was, um, I was struggling on the inside, but everything looked great on the outside. And so I just kept thinking that if I just made things look better on the outside, then I would feel better on the inside. And, you know, surprise, surprise, that didn't work. But I get this call from my friend and his daughter had taken her own life. She died of suicide. Um, and he calls me because, you know, at that point I was capable of being a friend. And, and um, so it was the first call he made and I supported him through that and like did all the, you know, the stuff on the surface that you're supposed to do. Um, and on the inside, my thought was, oh, I wish I had the courage to do what she did. Like, I, I wish that I could, like, like, why am I such a coward that I can't kill myself? Um, because I had, for the first time in my life, everything outside of me that I ever thought would make me happy. And on the inside, I felt desperate and I felt suicidal. And I felt like I was dying in full pub public view and nobody could see it. And um, And at that point, I picked up the food and I was off. And you know what? That relapse saved my life um, because without that, I would not have gotten back to these rooms and I would not have found access to a spiritual solution. And I would not be aware of what I now know today, which is this, the spiritual axiom that I heard, um, you know, in, in the 12 steps and 12 traditions, which is that, um, and Bill Wilson wrote, it is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. And I never understood that. I always thought that something outside of me was responsible for why I felt the way that I did. And so I spent my life chasing these external things, trying to make my outsides okay so that I could feel inside the way I, I knew I didn't feel, but I didn't know why, you know, because I would see other people and they, something good would happen in their lives and they would be happy and something good in, would happen in my life and I would feel like, is this all there is? Like, I thought this was going to give a bigger payoff. Like for me, the only thing that gave me the sense of ease and comfort was that first compulsive bite, you know, that first purge, that first act of restriction, that, you know, first mile of a run, you know, like it was just, I just needed to feel okay on the inside. And I could never do that by managing my externals. Um, and Fred's 
you know, Fred's experience shows me that none of us can ever do it by managing our externals. If we have this, you know, this, this internal malady, it has to be treated on an internal level. Um, and I love, you know, that if I, if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. And so, you know, for me, I need to remember that like I use this program has, saved me from food, from what I was doing with food. But really, more than that, it saves me from my alcoholic mind, which anybody, you know, who's taken a 10 step from me knows that I am an alcoholic mind. Like, I still will always have an alcoholic mind. You know, I'm self-centered. I call people. I'm like, this is what's going on with me. I'm disturbed. You know, like, let me let me share and let me get right with God so that I can be right on the inside. But what I know today is that, like, it's not about me getting my ex situation managed effectively. It's about me allowing the light and the love of God to flow in and work inside of me so that my insides can be okay no matter what is happening outside of me. And Fred talks about that, you know, that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I got to tell you, prior to this, I was not interested in spiritual programs. I was interested in outcomes, like, you know, and still can be sometimes where I'm like, I just want this to happen. Um, so I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. And um, and what I'm learning is that actually, like, you know, just like today, I have this unconditional commitment to abstinence. Um, I also need to have an unconditional commitment to all of the spiritual principles. Like, what does it look like to be honest? even when it's hard? What does it look like to be of service even when I don't want to be? What does it look like to keep someone's anonymity when like, oh, I would love to gossip, right? Like, and, and so to me today, these spiritual principles are, are how I learn to live. Um, and I don't know how to be spirit, like I don't know how to be a principled person any more than I know how to eat safely and sanely in a way that is not self-destructive. Um, but I don't really need to know like all the answers. I just need to do the work and to make the space for something greater than me um, that I can believe in to work through me. And, um, you know, the big book says at the very end of more about alcoholism, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So, like, my defense has to come from a higher power. But my dilemma when I came into this program was that I didn't actually really believe in God um, or believe in anything greater than me. Um, I believe that life sucks and then you died. I believed that I was unlovable, that I was fundamentally damaged, that anyone who loved me or cared about me was super stupid and a sucker. Um, I believe that if I didn't try to get what I wanted when I wanted it, then, you know, nothing good would ever happen for me. And I, and so I just want to share, like, I think wherever we are is where we're, it, like, it's okay to make a beginning from that place. And one of my first prayers this time around back was I, you know, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm going to admit this, but one of my first prayers was F you. Like I just looked up at, you know, at whatever was up there and out there. And I was like, F you, my life sucks. I think you're stupid. You know, like I, I hate you. What have you done for me lately? And that was, you know, the beginning of my relationship with God, you know, was really just being able to get honest about where I was with my level of faith and my level of spirituality. 
which was zilch, um, you know, but, and, and today, you know, I have an amazing relationship with the power of God and I see, you know, divinity reflected in my own humanity and in the humanity of others, but I hated myself. I hated other people. Um, I, you know, I just, I, my insides were so damaged. There was so much cluttering me up, so much shame, so much self-loathing. Um, and today, you know, I still have, it comes up at times, but I, I don't live there anymore. And it's really pretty beautiful. And um, in We Agnostics, it, it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a, spirit, a spiritual experience will conquer. And so, you know, that that's my invitation, right, to myself and to others. This is like, how do I seek a spiritual experience? Um, and, and in order to have that, there's some pre, like, there's a precondition for that, which is that I have to be entirely abstinent from all of my allergic ingredients and behaviors, not because God's punishing me, but because if I'm not abstinent and if I'm not clear on the inside, then I can't access that God and I can't feel that working through me and I have no desire to really turn to it because my God is still food and like and that's still working in some capacity or I have the illusion that it's working. Um and today, you know, I my inner condition is completely different. And you know, the my external circumstances, sometimes really great things happen and it's wonderful and I'm happy about it. Sometimes really, really great things happen and I'm not happy enough and <laughs> I wonder why, you know. Sometimes horrible things happen and I'm still like pretty at peace and at ease within myself and I'm floored every time that happens. Sometimes horrible things happen and I'm like, you know, desperate and depressed and I need to deal with that in some way. Um, most of the time where I struggle is when my life is in the place between extremes and I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, what is this process business, God? Like, I want to get to the results. Um and and I, I just today, like what I know to be true is that I, it's not about what's happening outside of me and it's not about these self-destructive thrills. It's about me being willing to align my will and my willpower with the will of God and to work in that direction and to know that like this thing that I believe in wants so much better for me than I could ever want for myself, both internally and externally, right? Like wants a better external life for me, wants to teach me lessons and wants to grow my character because like, I, I mean, that's like, that's amazing to be able to match calamity with serenity, to be able to be a whole person, regardless of what my external life looks like. Um, and I just want to read the promises um, real quick, the ninth and tenth set promises, because like, this is my experience is that they have nothing to do with my external life and everything to do with my inner condition. Um, and I was never capable of understanding that before. Like I always thought that I was going to work these 12 step programs. I was going to get a really great boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, a really great job. And like, that would be how financial insecurity would leave me and how like, you know, whatever. I don't know. I just thought I was going to work this thing and then my external life would be what I wanted it to be. And what I'm learning is that I get to work this thing and then my internal life gets richer and richer and richer. And I have the most loving relationship with God that I've ever had. And I hope um, that it will continue to grow. I believe that it has to, right? And I love myself today, which is amazing considering where I came from. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to end with the ninth and 10th step promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. 
we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And then the tenth step promises. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And so that's my experience is that today, you know, I get to live in these promises as a result of doing this work and entire abstinence and continuing to work steps 10 11 and 12 and you know I hear a lot of people say don't quit before the miracle happens and sometimes I think that's taken to mean you know like keep coming to meetings and don't quit until the miracle happens you know keep coming to meet it you know keep reading the literature keep whatever and I think what it means is like put down all of the things that are killing me in terms of the behaviors and the ingredients that I'm ingesting or avoiding ingesting or whatever you know put down all of the things that are going to lead me to death um, and then work the steps and don't quit until that miracle happens because my insides have been completely and totally rearranged and continue to be rearranged as God works in me. And I believe that that is possible for each and every person. Um, if they work these steps in entire abstinence, like they will have a spiritual transformation. I've seen it happen. And if it could happen four times for a girl like me, it can certainly happen for you. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I'll pass. And thank you so much um, for listening. Dara, thank you so much for, you know, taking the words off the pages and bringing them to life for us this morning. And, you know, we're so appreciative that you, you weaved your personal experience with the, uh, so beautifully with the text. And so now we're going to transition to our question and answer uh, phase of the program this morning. So we're just going to go with questions only for Dara. And so if you have a question for Dara, uh, please unmute by pressing star one and give me your first name and last initial. Alexa Beth. from Boston. Loretta H. Choose S from New Jersey. Okay, here's who I heard so far. Um, I heard Katie, Loretta, Judith, and Pete. Was there an Elena? Did I get that? Alexa. Alexa? Claudia C. Alexis. Yes. Alexis, Claudia. 
Okay, I have Alexis, Katie, Loretta, Judith, Pete, and Claudia. Am I missing somebody? Sue Seth from New Jersey. I'm sorry, say again. Sue S from New Suze. Jersey. Okay, yeah, thank you, Sue. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, let's stop with that. And uh, so we'll go in this order. Alexis, Katie, Loretta, Judith, Pete, Claudia, and Sue. So first up with the question for Dara is Alexis. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for your service, and um, thank you for the, your um, your special edition. Uh, and uh, my question is, being human, how much of of your willpower coincides with God's perfect perfect nature? Well, what what is the uh, you know how much of each? Oh, wow. Um, thank you so much for that question. Um, I want to answer it honestly, and I will say that I feel like it really depends for me on the situation. Like, yeah, I am a human being, and there are areas of my life where I still very much struggle with agnosticism. Like, I still think God's not going to do something for me. And so in those areas, I tend to really work really hard until I come to the end of me and I realize like, oh, I'm just making this worse and worse and worse. Um, and, you know, and then there are some areas where like, I don't like, God just has to tell me once and I, and I get it and I'm willing and I align my, my will with God's. And so, you know, I, I feel like for me, there's not an exact formula in terms of like the percentages, but there is an exact process which doesn't change um, whether my will is aligned with God's or not. And so for me, the process is to go to God and ask God for God's will and for a revelation. Um, and once I do that, then I have to ask myself, like, how willing am I to act on the guidance and direction that I'm getting? And if I'm not willing, then, you know, generally I, that's when I go to people and I talk to them and I might do some 10 steps and I might, you know, and pray and, you know, kind of like do the work to align my will with God's. But I'm, yeah, I'm so imperfect with it. And I, I'm, I fail every day, you know, and I, I heard it said that we aim for spiritual perfection and we settle for progress. And like, that's one of the ways I know I'm not God today is because I fail at trying to be God every day. So um, that's not an exact like answer to your question, but I really appreciate the question, and hopefully that helps a little bit. Thanks, Alexis, for the question. Okay, next up we have Katie, followed by Loretta. Good morning, Katie. Hello. Hi, Larry. Thanks for your service. Sarah sure. L., wow, my question is you're my sister in addictive food behaviors. Thank you. Um, y'all know the question I'm going to ask. So how do I get and stay abstinent with addictive food behaviors? Because that is not something that I heard for a very long time. So I just was hoping maybe you could frame it as a sponsee comes to you and you do what? Or for your program of recovery, you do what? To stay and remain surrendered in that area, please. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, I love what you said about, like, the importance of um, getting and staying. And I think for me, like, getting is one thing, stay, you know, staying is 
certainly like doing the spiritual work, but the getting um, abstinent and even knowing how to define that when it comes to behaviors, I really try to take a very thorough and comprehensive history with that person. And so I ask them a lot of questions and, you know, and a lot of questions were asked to me. And so, for example, I might say, you know, what are all the things that you do with and around food? You know, like, tell me about your exercise routine. What is that like? You know, um, how how do you get rid of, you know, your your the food that you've ingested? How do you manage the consequences of your eating behavior? You know, tell me what are what are the things that if I told you you had to give up, you couldn't make and keep a promise to me about that. You know, and I really really try to get to know like I think we're so lucky in this program that we get to do a fifth step, you know, around food even before we start on the steps. And and I I think what is has been so important and so humbling for me to remember is that each person's abstinence is between them, God, and their own historical behavior. Um, And so what I mean by that is like I have to really rigorously go through with that person to delve into what their truth is and for them. And if they have an area of uh, that like I am not privy to or that it lies outside of the realm of my experience, I might refer them to someone else. And actually that was my, my beautiful, wonderful sponsor in this program, like was not exercise bulimic like me. Um, And so she, she suggested that I call someone and ask them for a suggestion around how to get recovered. And I did. And they suggested I have 30 days of no exercise right when I came into this program. And so I did that, you know, and so like for me, it's about, okay, tell me your experience and how do I help you get really, really honest about all the things that are blocking you from God? And then that's what you're accountable to. Like no, no one that I sponsor has the same abstinence as me. Like that would just be me playing God. But what they do have is an abstinence from the things that they were doing and the things that they were eating that they could not, um, you know, stop and stay stopped. And then how they stay stopped is they, you know, they they have that definition of abstinence. They know what that is for them. Um, and then we work towards getting them connected with God to God. And I will say also there has to be a willingness to be rigorously honest throughout the process because occasionally some someone will realize that a food or a behavior is problematic along the way. And in my experience, like God has always loved me enough to let me let go of it while remaining abstinent and recovered. Um, but if I don't tell the truth about it, then I'm destined for a relapse. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. And thanks so much for the question. Yeah, thanks for the question, Katie. Okay, next up we have Loretta followed by Judith. Good morning, Loretta. And thank you. Thank you, Larry, for everything you always do. Gara, I hear the divine essence of you in this share, and I relate to you in every single aspect of my essence. But what I'd like to ask you, and this is my story, um, is when, because you talked about, which I do, coveting the thinness. That is really my actual disease. And I am programmed, have, even though I'm recovered, have had that instance happen to me in recovery. What do you do immediately? And then what is the process to finally 
get you to a God sighting where you don't need to even be there anymore. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Yeah. What is your process? It does, totally. So what I will say is that for me, there's a huge distinction between behaviors and emotions. <laughs> like, and, so, um, and so what I would say is that if I am doing anything to actively bring about a change in my body weight, shape, or size that is not made in consultation with my dietitian and my sponsor, if I'm like acting on impulses or urges or ideas, then my belief for myself is that I'm actually in the disease. Um, so having said that, you know, if, if I experience a thought, which I do, you know, I, I've experienced thoughts of like, you know, my body isn't thin enough or I'm not lovable enough or, you know, whatever. I have a, a paunchy belly. Like I, I do a 10 step on that. Um, and I get relief and I see my part, but if I'm acting on those impulses, on those urges, on the ideas, there is no Space in my experience for God to come in and relieve me of the mental obsession because I'm still in the disease. And so what I would say is that like my first question to someone would be like, are you acting on those impulses in any way? Like what, you know, is there a change that needs to happen between the, you know, the dietitian, between your sponsor, like with your food, you know, or whatever to kind of like make sure that you are not activating because I can activate the allergy of restriction for sure. Um, And so I need to make sure that I'm not doing that. And if I'm not activating my allergy of restriction in a physical way, then the spiritual principles are going to work and I will be relieved of that um, through 10th steps, through, you know, being of service to other people. Like sometimes I'll feel fat and then I'll sponsor someone who's like anorexic and I'm like, oh my God, you're delusional and you're distorted. And like, then I can see that I'm delusional and I'm distorted. So I, I think it's for me, like the feelings are what they are sometimes. And I just have to bring those to God and trust that, you know, they, they do get relieved. Um, and occasionally they pop back up again, but if I'm behaviorally acting out, um, then I really have to go back and look at like where I am in relationship to step one. All right. Thank you, Loretta. Okay. Next up we have Judith followed by Pete. Good morning, Judith. Judith, press star one, if you would. Okay. Either some technical difficulties or Larry's hearing difficulties. (laughs) But I did hear – are you there, Judith? Okay. Let's go with Pete. Brother Pete, good morning. Good morning, Larry. This is Judith. I'm a compulsive overeater. This is Pete. I'm a compulsive overeater. Recovered today by God's grace and mercy in Pennsylvania. Dara, deep and heavy, really, really thought-provoking and insightful presentation. Thank you for it. Really got me kind of fired up when you were talking about the sense of superiority that you received from being thin, and, and that was uh, really kind of going on. But anyway, so my question is this. You had mentioned that as an addict, you have a massive ego. Could you tell me, like, massive compared to other people? Like, massive relative to to what? Like, how did you arrive at that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for that question. Um, and uh, so I I was going to share this in my talk, and I, and I didn't. Um, and, and, I, but I'm, and I'm so glad that you asked the question. I, I'll give you an example. When I was, I think, seven or eight years old, 
I went to my mom and I said, mom, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to die. You know, and I was so broken up about it. I was terrified that I was going to die. And she said, oh, like, oh, like, well, why? You know, like, you know, tell me more about that. And I said, well, because when I die, the whole world's going to disappear. Like everything is going to cease to exist. Like I legitimately thought that the world revolved around me, but like every other person was a figment of my human imagination. Um, and that I was the center of the universe. And, and as an, like I still today can feel that way. And so, you know, when someone does something that I think they shouldn't be doing or that offend, like I feel offended by in some way, I think it has to do with me. You know, I think everything outside of me has to do with me and that people should be different because I want them to be or situations should be different because I want them to be. And so I think when I talk about a massive ego, that's what I mean. It's this idea that I like am more responsible than I am and like more important than I am. But also it can be the flip side of that, that I'm like less important. Like I never thought that my, what I was doing would have any bearing on people. Like I was like, well, so what? Like I'm just going into treatment again. It doesn't impact you. Like I didn't see that I was devastating the people who loved me. And so I think for me, when I talk about my massive ego, it's like this disproportionate sense of my own proportions, you know, and, and I talked a little bit today about body dysmorphia, but I have life dysmorphia. It's like, I see myself and my problems and my life completely distorted, like from what they are. And it doesn't mean I'm not important. I'm very important. I'm just not the most important, you know, or the least important either. And so, yeah, thank you so much for that question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Pete. Okay, next up, we have Claudia followed by Suze. Claudia, your turn. Hi, thank you so much, Dara. Um, boy, I'm taking all these notes, <laughs> um, especially from these questions, too. Um, I think I heard that um, you said that you, you learn a lot from the agnostic. And I've never really heard that before from a um, program member and um, I loved it because um, it steers me away from black and white about, you know, how I see people. Um, could you explain a little more about um, what you learned from the agnostic? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like, and specifically uh, people who are atheists in this program have taught me so much about being able to see the God in other people because like I, right, like I dismiss people, like I dismiss people, I dismiss like the planet, I dismiss whatever, but like I've learned I, um, mostly in my professional life, like I've had the, the opportunity to be able to interview a lot of people and, and, and a lot of people I've interviewed who are atheists have shared with me that like, you know, one of the things that they live for is to show up and be of service to other people and they see the good in humanity um, and they feel like they find a sense of meaning and purpose like in this life, like in the here and now. And for me, I don't understand that. Like, I think I'm always living for something else after this. Like, you know, like I'm like, all right, all right, let's just like get through this thing to like get to the next thing or whatever. And so I learned so much about how I want to experience God and how I want to love people from people who are able to show up and do this life thing without like 
needing to believe in some creative intelligence. And, and to be clear, I also learned so much from people of all different religious faiths and traditions. Like, I, you know, I really believe today that God is everything. God is a diverse, inclusive force of love and light. And so to me, like, I can learn about my own connection with a power greater than myself through anyone else's belief system if I just allow myself to be open. And it doesn't have to change or supersede my belief system, but it can enrich it if I allow it to. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> really, really, really. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claudia. Okay, Suze, you're up. Good morning. Good morning. This is Suze S. from New Jersey. Thank you for your service, Larry. It's great to be on your show, quote-unquote. And um, also, Dara, thank you so much for your share. Everybody's asked pretty much what I need to know. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is great. Um, I guess for me, it's just a matter of how do I turn back to a higher power. It was very eye-opening for me when you said that food was my higher power. I got it even more than I do when I'm reading or hearing from my sponsors. Not that any of that is lacking, but you really put it out there that my food was my higher power and how I controlled. And that's the first part of my question is how do you come back to higher power? And also um, uh, how is exercise part of, of your recovery? Sure. Um, so I think I'll answer the second part of the question, the second question first, which is that um, – Today, as with all things in my in my life and in my program, it's really um, I feel like I've been given direct guidance from God as to what to do, and then I go to people and I check that out, um, and I live in accordance with that. So early on in my in my recovery, you know, I went to God and I felt like I was getting guidance and direction to exercise um, three times. A week and so you know and I and I went and I talked to my sponsor and I talked to my um, dietitian and um, and that's what I did and um, you know and then it, it changed as I felt like I was getting different guidance and direction and then recently I actually um, I'm in the middle of a health issue um, and I went to the doctor and they said you know you need to do significantly less and so currently my exercise looks like walking at two miles an hour which for an exercise bulimic like me like it's like what's the point you know, like on that? Um, but I do that you know for 30 minutes at a stretch or I do like very very gentle like very light stretching and so you know my, what my exercise plan is a bit like my food plan um, in that it changes much like my you know with abstinence the food plan can change but entire abstinence like sort of it's fixed and so for for me, with exercise, I think for every single person, it has to be determined like in consultation with ourselves, with God, um, with another person that knows our, our extensive history. Um, but it is for me like not deviating outside of that because of how I feel. Um, it means taking days off if I don't feel well and not making them up and not trying to compensate, you know, in some way. Like it really is an act of spiritual surrender on a daily basis. Um, and then the other question about how to come back to God, um, I, like, that's a hard one for me because I, in the past, I really, I, what it required for me to come back to God was a spectacular relapse, and I don't want to ever have that again. And so I think possibly because of some superstition around that, 
and also because of how much I value my relationship with God. I do daily God practices, whether I feel like it or not. Um, and so sometimes internally I can feel distant from God, but I continue to show up for the relationship and for the partnership. And so because of that, you know, I, I feel like, you know, it, it continues to click into place. And I do a lot of like 10 steps and 11 step and, um, you know, my God time starts my day and ends my day every day without exception. So I, I just feel like for me, it's like I have to kind of behaviorally bring myself to the relationship over and over again, regardless of how I feel emotionally. And um, sometimes I am actively in love with God. And sometimes I am just behaving in love with God, despite how I feel, if that is helpful. Yeah, thanks for the question, Suze. Okay, just in the interest and out of respect for time, maybe we'll take three more uh, questions for Dara, and then we'll, uh, we'll see where we're at. Uh, who would like to pose a question for Dara? Um, Angie from Canada. Angie, did I hear a Judy? Jody. As well? E. Jo oh, hi, Jody. Okay, jo I heard Jody and Angie, and w one more perhaps? Diane G. from Canada. Okay. Let's stop with Diane, and then we'll see where we're at. Let's start with Jody, followed by Angie. Hi, Jody. Good morning. Good morning, Larry, and good morning, Dara. Thank you so much for a beautiful special edition. It's so great to hear from you and other anorexics and bulimics. My name is Jody, and I am one also recovered. Thank you, God, today. Yes, I could very much relate to the um, being thin and feeling superior of a, in a way and also finding that very alienating from people as well. My question, though, is about what you mentioned about dangerous sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you have found it necessary to attend another 12-step program for that or if um, your recovery in OA has taking care of that as well. Oh, thank you so much for that question. I didn't know how to speak about it without, uh, like, because um, it's a huge part of my story, but um, part of every relapse I've ever had and part of my inability to really connect with and remain connected in God is that, with God is that I'm also a sex and love addict. Um, and because of that, what I feel is different this time around for me is that my sobriety date in OA is also my sobriety date in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and I am recovered in both programs today. And so I don't violate my ideals, um, which I can only do having had a spiritual awakening in that area as well. And so I think you know, for me as a dual addict, it was really about being open to allowing myself to acknowledge my powerlessness in multiple areas um, and receive independent, you know, support in both programs and really have a spiritual awakening in both areas. So, yeah, I mean, OA was not enough for me. And I think for me, trying to make it enough um, was actually a huge part of why I would not feel whatever I thought I was supposed to feel and would leave the program after a couple of years because it just was too painful and unsustainable to be acting out in one addiction while having this amazing recovery in another area. And so thank you so much for that question. And yeah, I'm duly recovered and I'm always happy to talk to people about um, my SLAA journey like off the line as well. Thanks, Jody. Thank okay, yeah, Angie. I'm channeling my Rolling Stones here. 
Angie, you're up. Good morning. Angie, press star one. All right, maybe I scared Angie away with uh, my uh, Rolling Stone stuff here. So let's go. We can come back to Angie. Uh, Diane, are you available for a question for Dara? Hi there, I'm Diane G, a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater from Canada. And Dara, thank you for your beautiful message. And when Larry opened up the meeting, he talked about spiritual malady. And I've also heard other speakers talk about that. So I'm wondering if you could just go, um, just describe that a little bit more in detail um, so I understand what that means. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, so what I understand it to mean, and by no means am I an authority on anyone else's spiritual malady, but what it what it means to me is um, the, the inner state that I feel as an addict um, whether I am in my active addiction or not, so like whether I'm using food or not, there's something in me. It's like, you know, I've heard it described as a God shape, shaped hole. There's like an inner void. And so for me, it comes out as like being restless, irritable, discontent. It can come out as being, you know, deeply ashamed, feeling not good enough, feeling separate from people, feeling like uh, I'm doing too much, like I'm doing too little, just feeling wrong on the inside. Um, and in my experience, you know, the only thing that has been able to take away those feelings is having a relationship with a power greater than myself that I was only able to get through to through the working of the 12 steps. And so I think, you know, how that spiritual malady shows itself in our lives, those patterns and stuff are things that we tend to identify in a step four and a step five, because I think everybody's flavor is a little bit different of like what it looks like and what it feels like. Um, but my understanding is just like it's this constant inner ick factor, like this feeling of like it's not okay on the inside. Um, and the only thing that does make it okay is having that spiritual experience. And and that spiritual experience doesn't like make it okay for, for forever. It's like you're taking a shower, you know, every day. It's like, yeah, I get clean, but then I kind of need to continue to do the maintenance and continue to, um, you know, to to invite that spiritual source in on a daily basis because the malady doesn't heal. It's always there, but I get to treat, treat it and arrest it on a daily basis. Thanks, Diane, for the question. Again, I'll just uh, see if Angie's available or maybe I, maybe I misheard that name. And it's star one to unmute. If not, we'll, we have time for perhaps one, maybe two more questions. Okay, anybody else? Questions uh, for Dara? Pedro, and was that Kim? Okay, I, I heard Pedro and perhaps Kim. So let's go with Pedro. Good morning, Pedro. Good morning, Larry. Can I be heard? You can. Uh, thank you, Dara, so much for your, your experience, strength, and hope. Uh, your recovery is awesome. Um, yeah, uh, my question is also, you know, I have heard, many times that this is an inside job and I heard you loud and clear talk about uh, the inside when you know compared to you outside and um, so I know that we have uh, an obsession of the mind and a knowledge of the body and the spiritual malady how do you practice against 
your spirituality? What are your your you know how do you connect or you know to deal with your spirituality? That's my question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. So, you know, every day for me, I wake up, I I meditate. Um, I do some different things about meditation, um, but I meditate and then I write three pages in my journal. I'm a bit OCD, so I write three pages in my journal, just like between me and God. It's like a conversation. It, you know, it's uh, like it's just sort of a prolonged two-way prayer where I sort of tell God everything that's on my heart and mind and God speaks to me. Um, and then if there's 10 steps that I have, like different disturbances that sometimes, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the day before or whatever, I'll make a note. And um, throughout the day, I'll give away those 10 steps to different spiritual people in my God squad, and um, which is a beautiful practice of, of sharing myself with another person and um, being open and, and allowing the light of God in. And then I pray, you know, throughout the day to God as best as I remember to do. I'm really imperfect about it. I'm getting better at learning to pause and learning to ask for guidance and direction and then act on that direction. And then, you know, at the end of the night, I um, I do a nightly review. I'm sort of like a bit of a renegade. So mine is just like a two-way prayer at the end of the night. Um, and it's just between me and God and, you know, where I'll bring a question or, or a gratitude or a concern or something and, and, and bring it to God and God will answer back to me. So it's like, I just feel like I'm in constant conversation with God uh, to the best of my ability in, in a very imperfect way. Um, and yeah, like just remembering that that is the most important relationship in my life is my relationship with God and that actually my, re- like my relationship with myself really matters too. And so I, um, I would say it's it's about having those spiritual disciplines, and those are just what work for me. But um, everyone gets to have their own relationship with God and and kind of play to their own strengths and talents and what works for them. Thanks so much, Pedro. Now, I the last name I was it Kim. I heard somebody, and what I heard was Kim, but I I'm not sure if I got that right. Was there another question from somebody? Okay, we've got time for one more. Just uh, start one to unmute. Okay. Well, if not, are from Kentucky. Can I, okay, can I terrific. You, you'll be our last. Yeah, you'll be our last questioner. Go right ahead. Awesome. Thanks for um, thanks for giving me this opportunity. Like I said, Becca R, recovered compulsive overeater, calling in from Kentucky. And I guess my question is about relapse prevention. What do you do in order to not fall into those patterns that led you to relapse before? What's different about this? Um, if you can just elaborate on that a little bit, thanks. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you so much. So for me, a huge part of that was going into another 12-step program and recognizing that like every relapse I had in my eating disorder was preceded by um, by acting out of accordance with my ideals um, in a different program. So that has been a huge part of it. Um, but I would say like the deeper part of it is that um, I finally got that food wasn't my problem. It isn't my problem. It's the solution and that the, the in unmanageability is internal. And I think having had the experience of getting everything I wanted outside of myself and still having it not be enough really drove home for me that like 
no, it is about that inner unmanageability on a daily basis. It is about my inner thought life and my spiritual life. Um, and so I would say like, that's been super important. And I, you know, I have really strong relationships and people are not my God, but like, I, I, I didn't ever do that before. Like I never really let people fully know me. I didn't have a dedicated squad of people that I called and reached out to and did 10 steps and 11 steps. And there's a huge, like there, for me, there's just been a lot of recognition that I am not um, some guru. I'm not like this overly important person. And so I do have to treat my own disease. I can't just give it away with step 12. And so I would say my step 10 practice specifically um, is so important. And it's something I've never really done before at the level that I'm doing it. And the step 11 practice and really building that relationship with God is um, so important. And because uh, like, that's where stuff is caught. Like I never, and the relapse always started way before I went to the food. It always started with my thinking and it always started with, you know, my acting out in these subtle ways, having nothing to do with the eating disorder and everything to do with like my entitlements and other character defects. And so, yeah, I would say steps 10 and 11 and 12 are really where I experience the most growth and that I am sponsored and I do sponsor and I share openly of myself in 10 steps. And I have like a lot of relationships with people who have more recovery than me and people who have less recovery and people who have roughly the same amount. Um, and I just learn, like I just have an, and I, and I've, und- I get today that like, it's not, um, it, this is a lifetime thing. Like I will never be done with this work. And um, so I don't know, but having said all that, like um, I don't take recovery for granted. And so, you know, like if I stop doing those practices, I'll be on this line again three years from now. Like if I make it, you know, introducing myself as a newcomer. So um, yeah, like this is something I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And I really just need to treat it on a daily basis. Thanks so much for the, the final question, Becca. And Dara, thank you so much. You're so generous with your time. And thank you for giving us a real diamond for our uh, mm-hmm. our special edition archives. <laughs> much Thanks appreciated. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. So we're going to uh, – and we'll get Dara's contact information following the uh, – the end of the recorded period. So we're going to close with a reading from a chapter entitled The Vision for You on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.